0: and I I do understand that some people um, were a little bit nervous or um, uh, had some apprehension after I'd finished or during the course. There is warnings in God's Word. Uh, They're not threats from God, they're warnings like any... Any responsible person in a place of work or family or in society would give warnings to people so they don't harm themselves. And there is some teaching in the church that's so ultra-positive. There's nothing wrong in being positive. I, I hope I'm a positive person. But it's like... There's no warning attached to it. There's no sense that holiness is really important to God. It's as though, well, live as best you can and if you don't quite make it, then God doesn't really mind. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would hate it to get to meet Jesus And he would say to me, Philip, I think you did a reasonably good job, but I've got to pull you up on something. You never warned the people. You were so ultra positive. You never warned them that there were dangers, that there was an enemy to their soul who would destroy them and whatever church they were part of, if you possibly could. So I'm not afraid to warn you. If you ever don't understand what I'm talking about or you become nervous, that door is always open to you. If I'm not there, probably Lee will be in the other door and come and talk to him, please. Don't be anxious, don't be fearful, talk it through. If you don't understand things, come and talk it through. The other thing when we went through these teachings we came when we were doing the third warning in hebrews 6 about foundational teachings they're the foundational teachings of christ or about christ this whole christian faith is about jesus christ it's not about a church or a kingdom there is a church there is a kingdom but it's about Jesus Christ. It's about our relationship with him. And he talks about elementary teachings being the foundation of our lives, and these in place, we can build strong Christian lives. You can be thinking, in an analogy to this, of a building. In a building, if you want to build a strong, high, tall building, You have to put a very strong foundation into the ground. Bigger the building, stronger the foundation. And so when he highlights these six foundational teachings, they're not flimsy things that can just be explained by one sentence. We want everything simple, easy. The kingdom of God and the things of God and the things of eternity... And the teachings of Christ, they are not simple. Some of them we have to apply some real thinking to work out what God is saying. God has to speak to us and lead us by his spirit to open up truth. So these six things here, we can read them out, what they are. Repentance from acts that lead to death. Faith in God. Instructions about baptisms the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are not light teachings. They are very strong and powerful teachings. My fear is, if they're not in place in your life, you cannot build a strong Christian life. And so it is the responsibility of those that stand before you to tell you what these foundations are to encourage you to uh, encourage you to build strong foundations into your life so you can build a strong christian life if you don't your christian life will implode if you try to build without laying a foundation in your life it will implode so i'm going to work through these some i might knock over a on one teaching, although I haven't gone to the full depth of it. Others are going to take many more than just one teaching. So you know where I'm going. I love a series. I don't have to think too much about what I'm going to speak on next. But I still have to do the digging and the building and the work and be able to open it up to you so it becomes real and important in your life. And these teachings are important. So let's do the first one. It is repentance from acts that lead to death. If you think that repentance is simply realizing that you are a sinner, so you go to God and you say, God, I am sorry for what I've done, and you believe you receive his forgiveness, and that's it, You're miles from the truth. It is not as simple as that. There's a lot of other things about repentance from acts that lead to death. So let's get going on this. I think think the Bible sometimes is difficult to understand because the words that we read, they don't mean the same things as the words that we use every day. And to add insult to injury, sometimes from Scripture to Scripture, the meaning of the word changes. I feel it's hard enough reading the Bible without you now saying that the words don't mean what they say. They do mean what they say, but not often in the context of which we might use them. So what does repentance mean? You think, okay, if I've offended somebody, I need to go to that person and show repentance. Tell them I'm sorry for what I did. Maybe make some amends. Receive their forgiveness and move on. That's it in its simplicity as we would deal with it here. The word repentance actually means a change of mind. It actually has absolutely nothing to do with saying sorry to God whatsoever. Now, when you repent, when we understand what it is, you might say sorry to God, you might cry, you might feel bad. But that has nothing to do with repentance. Repentance is not a thing of the emotion. It is a thing of a decision. I will repent. I will turn around. I will have a change of mind. Without the change of mind, you can cry till you die, That's not repentance. It's not. You might feel sorry for what you did, but without the change of mind, without reversing your actions, repentance has never taken place. Some people do uh, cry a lot, say sorry a lot, feel bad a lot, but they've never repented because if they had, they would just concentrate on turning their actions around. I remember doing something once which was quite serious, and I prayed to God to put it right, and I wanted to feel bad. But as I prayed, God never let me feel bad. I thought, God, just put some heavy thing on me. Make me really want to grovel and and cry to you even more so I could put it right. But he never. I felt all right inside. I was sorry for what I had done, but I was expecting God to do something terrible to me. Some people think that repentance is doing penance. Now, we're evangelical Christians, so we booted doing penance right off the pitch. It doesn't exist. We don't go there at all. Doing penance is voluntary self-punishment to atone for our sins. And you know there are parts of the Christian church that do a lot of this stuff. You might have seen them on television documentaries. It's not much in our culture, but... You know, they go on their knees and they walk on their knees all the way up a mountain following maybe an idol or a statue. Or, Or people used to take these whips and they used to slash their bodies from right to left like this. They used to lie in uncomfortable blankets or clothing until they felt the pain, somehow paying penance. And that through these acts of penance, that God would see their intention to be good and he would grant them grace of forgiveness. I think it's wrong. From the word of God, I realise that true repentance is an inward decision to change my mind about something. That's all. I'm not saying it's easy, in fact, without God's assistance men and women are incapable of repenting. You cannot repent unless God ministers his grace to you to make it possible for you to understand, decide and then turn around and come back to God. Nothing starts with you. Everything starts with God. Mm -hmm. See, sometimes we discover in our lives we are doing something wrong. So you go, right, I'm going to change this. Don't bother trying. It won't work. God won't let it work. You're not capable of changing anything in your life. But if you realise that something is wrong, what you seek to do is receive the grace of God so it becomes clear, the wrongness of it, and then he gives you the power to turn and walk back to God, to walk in a new direction. Don't ever let me hear you say you're going to try harder. I will say as quickly as I can, don't waste your time because you can't do it. Not possible. This is a foundational doctrine of the church. How many millions of Christians are trying to work harder to get it right when the foundational teaching says you can't? It's not possible. But God has made it possible that we can repent and come back. So let's open this up a little bit further. The most wonderful teaching that Jesus brought on this whole subject was a parable. It was a story. It was the story of the parable of the prodigal son. I'm sure the vast majority, you know the story well. If not, I'll go through it just quickly. A father has two sons... One appears to be a very religious boy who is going to stay at home. The other, he's a bit wild. It says in the NIV he wanted wild living. He spent what he had on wild living. Well, he had no money for his own, so he says to his father, when you die, I will have an inheritance. I'll strike a deal with you. Give it to me now. Give me all that you can now. And I will go and I will enjoy my life. I will live the way I want to live. Now, amazingly, God does this. The Father, the Father represents God. He gives him this money. And off he goes and he lives the life that he wants to live. He lives a wild life. A wild life is a life that is lived independent of what God thinks or anyone else. In the common vernacular, you don't give a monkey's. (laughs) You do exactly what you want to do to satisfy yourself. So he does this. Of course, his money goes and runs out eventually. He probably doesn't like the idea of working too much. Uh, While he's got plenty of money, he's got plenty of friends, then eventually it all goes. And he finds himself hungry, he finds himself lonely, he finds himself standing there in rags. Then he makes a decision. I don't know if emotions had anything to do with this. Maybe there was a strong feeling of self-pity. I don't know. Poor me. How have I got into such a mess? Maybe. But he says something in... uh, It's in Luke 15. The whole story is from Luke 15, 11 to 32. But in verse 18, he says this. I will set out and go back to my father. He makes a decision. He is now repenting. He is repenting. He says, I will work out a little speech to give to my father when I get back. It's the way it strikes me anyway. He was planning to say something that would perhaps make the bridge between him and his father a little bit better. So he rehearses what he's going to say. Then in verse 20, he immediately carries out his decision and he says, so he got up and he went to his father. Can I say to you, without God's grace on him, we can sometimes come to our senses, but to turn and go back to God is a work of God's grace. You cannot return, even though you come to your senses, apart from the grace of God giving you the anointing and power to turn and walk back to him. You know, as I read that story, all my life when I read that story, I thought when the father greets the son and he starts to spout out this speech that he's prepared, I've always known that the father never listened to a word of it. He wasn't moved by these words. In the same way, when you're on your knees, going, oh God, forgive me. Honestly, he's not moved by that stuff. What touches the heart of God? is you come to a decision about the direction of your life is so wrong, is so away from God, that you say, God, I want to come back to you. And somehow God ministers some grace into your life that you're able to get up that day, change the very direction of your life, and go back to God. Imagine what changed in that young man's life. Everything, his arrogance, his pride in walking away, what he wanted, what he desired. But somehow God ministered a grace into him that he was able to turn around. See, it takes the power of God to do that. He wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going I'm to miss out on this independent life, doing what I want Uh, being away from home and my father's... No, no. That's what humanity in us would have said. But the grace of God came upon him and he had the power to turn and to go back to his father. Do you know, when we were born into this world and we could make some decisions on our own, we all left home. We left God and we left home. All have sinned and come short. And Isaiah tells us, like sheep, every one of us has wandered to find our own path and our own way. We've gone away from God, away from the Father, away from the home. And at some point in your life, the grace of God came to you. And you had ideas and thoughts of turning and coming back to God. Life sucks where I am now. I don't like this. You're coming to your senses. But it's only by the grace of God that you can turn and start walking back to him. I would presume that if not all, 99% of you have done that. You never came to God. He, He brought this grace of repentance to you And you acted on it. You received the grace of God and you moved in a direction towards God. You must stop. Change your mind. Change your direction. Change the course that you're on. Face the opposite way. Turn your back on whatever life was to you and start moving towards God. That's repentance. So when... His son is coming up the road. The words aren't important. He knows he's repenting. He knows he's laid hold of the grace of God because if he hadn't, he would still be there with the pigs. He knew he had laid hold of the grace and he didn't need a speech. He was there. He was there. The first essential when you are called is that you lay hold of the grace of God and come back. Now, here's the scary bit. You say, well, that wasn't a problem up to now, Phil. Now it gets difficult. Imagine you're a Christian. That's not hard to imagine, I presume. So you are walking towards God. He's becoming brighter and brighter and life is becoming more real to you. But in some areas of your life, you're walking away from God. Some of your attitudes, some of your actions, some of the things that you're thinking and saying and doing. And God comes to you and he says, you need to change, you need to turn around because this action that you're taking, this direction that you're walking in, isn't towards me. Generally, you're walking towards me as a Christian, but there are areas where you are walking away from me. Now, only you know what they are. And because God's speaking to you about that in your life, it doesn't mean that he's talking to other people about that. Sometimes you think, but other people are doing this. That's none of your business. None of your business what God lets them do is what he lets and doesn't let you do that matters. And so God starts to speak to you, but you know what you do? You turn God off. Again, and 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 again. And the voice of God... Stops talking about that thing. Can I suggest that you might have got to a very dangerous place where the grace of God for you to repent in this area is no longer available to you? You have passed a place of unforgiveness. You are forgiven of your sins, you're going to heaven, that's not a problem. But you have passed a place where even if you want to come back to God you will never be able to ever because his grace will never be available to you to come back are there some frowns are there some question marks are there prove this to me then because all I know about is the wonderful grace of God where God is all-forgiving and all-loving and he will take me back no matter what I do or how I live my life or what I say. Let me show you two examples from Scripture where that did not happen. The first one is the life of a man called Judas and the second is a man called Esau. Godly men... Without a shadow of a doubt, Judas was one of the apostles of God. He moved in the miraculous, moved in the deliverance, saw wonderful things. We think of Esau. Esau was a man who was of the lineage of Abraham. God often says Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Esau is not in that line. But he was of that family. So they were very important to God. Now, don't panic. What the Bible gives us is extreme cases. I want to give you an extreme case that God has given us in the New Testament. If you read in Acts chapter 5, you read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were members of the early church. They had some land and they either wanted popularity with the apostles or favour with the church. They wanted to be seen in a very positive light. I'm not quite sure what it was. But what they did, they sold their land. They kept a portion of the money, and it was their land, their money, to themselves, and they gave another portion to the church. But they made out as though they had given everything to the church. The only sin that I can see that they have committed by reading this is the sin of lying to the apostles, lying to the church, and seeking to deceive the apostles and deceive the church. And God, on this occasion, causes them both to drop dead Now, I'll tell you something, since that day, millions upon millions of Christians have lied and deceived or sought to deceive the church. May I suggest that even you have? You go, what on earth do you mean? Have you always been 100% honest with your brothers and sisters? Have you always been 100% straightforward with the leadership? Or has there been some deception, some lies in there? Now, all I'm saying is God is fully within his right to take you out. So you don't mess this church up anymore. But he doesn't. Because of his great grace, he lets it happen He's patient with us and he's tolerant with us. But he could, couldn't he? If he did it with Ananias and Sapphira, he could do it with you and you wouldn't have a leg to stand on to argue your case. But God in his grace allows that to happen. They were an extreme case to show you something. When we come to Judas and Esau, can I suggest to you they too are extreme cases. Probably none of you are continuing in a sin where you have gone beyond the point where God won't grant you the grace of repentance. I would think it's probably safe to say that. I don't know, but probably, it's very safe. So what happens with Judas? Let's go back to a little bit that we can read about Judas. Judas, remember, sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And when it all turns out very wrong for him, he wants to return to God, he wants to repent. He wants to sort things out. It says this in Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, that's Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. If you've got an authorised version of the Bible, it says he was seized with repentance. No, he wasn't. He was seized with remorse. You can't be seized with repentance. You can only be seized with remorse for what you have done wrong. Repentance is what God grants you so you can come back to God. You understand the difference? You can be very sorry for what you've done, but to come back to God takes an act of his grace to enable you to do it. He was seized with remorse and he returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and to the elders. He said, I have sinned. He recognised his sin. He said, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went and hung himself. When Judas was sitting at the table at the Last Supper, Jesus did a very wonderful thing to Judas. Some people say he took bread and and put it in the, in the, the meat stew and offered him this directly. Others say he took the best piece of meat that was in the pot. The best piece of meat went to the honored guest. He took this and he offered it to Judas. He was saying to Judas, the grace of repentance is still here for you, Judas. Look, look, this is what I'm saying. It's still available to you. I presume Judas took it and ate it. But there was no change in his heart at that point. So a little later, Jesus said, then go off and do what you have to do. He reached a point where the forgiveness of God was now closed on him. He went, he did what he did, he saw it was a terrible thing, he sought repentance to come back to God, but it was too late. It crossed a line, and forgiveness was no longer available to him. People argue. Still today, whether we'll see Judas in heaven or not. Do you know what I think? I'm going to tell you. Okay. You have to work some of these things out. They, they become conundrums for us. We, we, we go this way and that way and everything. So, so that was him. Esau, if you come back to that uh, teaching I gave you on the warnings, come to the... Fifth warning that we looked at. Uh, It starts in chapter 12 and uh, verse 15. I will read this one verse to you. It says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Understand, God's grace is something he makes available to you. If you don't take it, it isn't always on offer to you, it is withdrawn from you at times. This is the example, verse 17. Remember Esau was to receive a double portion, a double blessing of everything. This was the grace of God in his life. He despised the grace of God. He despised the blessings of God. He thought more of himself and his own life than the things of God. And so one day, he's out hunting. He comes back. He smells his brother's stew that he's cooking or whatever, a meal. He says, give me some of this. Now, the old twister Jacob says, I will give you this. But you say to me that I can have your birthright. Now... He was saying that in front of God. What he was saying is, I don't care about the things of God. I don't care about the grace of God. I'd rather have some stew today than fuss about all of that stuff. So he says, yeah, you can have my birthright and all those things pertaining to God. Just give me the stew. So he eats the stew. Read what it says now in verse 17. Afterwards, afterwards when he realised that he had lost the birthright... As you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Why did God reject him? Surely the grace and love of God is endless. It never stops. It it goes on. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how far you go. It doesn't matter what sort of life. The, The grace of God goes on and on and on. You say, well, but he's an old testament person. I'm reading from the New Testament. It's a warning that's clear to us in the old, that is as real in the new as it is the old. He says, as you know, when you wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind. Whose mind? Whose mind? I know, you think, God's mind. He couldn't change God's mind. No, 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 no. He couldn't bring about a change in his own mind. Do you understand? God was not going to change his mind. He had gone beyond a place where God was going to change his mind. He was in a place beyond where the grace of God regarding repentance was possible to him and so he couldn't get it into his mind remember what i said repentance was it's a decision it is a change of mind he couldn't get that change of mind to enable him to turn back and walk back to god he wanted cheap grace Cheap grace isn't new, cheap grace is old. He was saying, God, somehow give me some cheap grace so it's all all right again. God said no. No, no, no. So Phil, I thought it was going to get better. Do you know, I sat down this week and I thought, God, I've been hammering these poor people like with all these warnings. Give me something good. Give me something I can just be ultra Phil positive and bless them. And they go, oh, that was really good, Phil. We feel really good about that. And then I felt the Lord say, you had those inquiries about the six doctrine. Tell them what these teachings are. And I thought, right, that's it. I'll start. I'll just leap right into this. And then I come up with this. And I go, oh, Lord. I'm going to be on them again. They're going to go home worrying a little bit, where they thought everything was all right, rethinking their theology again. See, why is it that some people, they hear the gospel again and again and again and again and they see it again and again and again, and they never turn? Now I hope that they haven't reached that point. I pray that if there are people in your mind that you're praying and say, God, I pray that in this particular case, your grace will go further than it's ever gone before. And God wants you to pray those prayers. He does. I pray that for my brother. My brother has stubbornly refused the gospel of Jesus Christ for 60 years. He's one who you might think, God said, I'm not bothering anymore. But I get before God and say, God, keep going. Keep showing him more grace. Keep extending the grace of repentance to him. Please keep going with it, God. Please keep going with it, God. And I believe that. I believe it'll go right to his deathbed and he will turn and come back. I believe it. You say, why? Because I choose to. I choose to believe in the goodness, the goodness of God. I choose to believe that as a child of God, he loves me more than anyone else on the face of this earth, all of you, and he'll do this for me. I believe that. But, But you see the urgency of it. If you give up on praying for your loved ones and think, oh, well, God will do something, That's a dangerous place to be. Dangerous. Keep going to him. No pleading, no crying. It says in the word of God, don't cry over your children because they're distant from me. Come with confidence and faith that my grace will be extended more to them. Esau did not find his way back. I think we've done a terrible thing. When I say we, I say the church. In trying to make the gospel so simple. Not simple to understand. That's the work of every good teacher or every good evangelist. Make it simple so that people can have it. But don't lie. Only believe. Come to Jesus, only believe. I've never read that in the New Testament ever. There is a song we sing, Only Believe, but that has nothing to do with this. So I'm not knocking the song. All things are possible, the song says, only believe. But when I read about the salvation of men and women's souls and the restoring of people back to God, it says repent and believe. I could give you six examples. They all said it. I'll give you one example, just one example. It's found in Acts 17 and 30. It says this In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. I won't explain what that is, we'd have to go somewhere else. But now, He has commanded all people everywhere to believe. No! To repent. To repent. To come to a place. Where God illuminates their understanding and he graces them the ability to turn and walk back to God. Of course, it's their choice. That's what I believe. The work is of God, the choice is of man. But to deny and reject and refuse again and again and again and again and again, maybe the grace. Is removed. One little thing to finish off with. Finally we are to repent from acts that lead to death. What's that? Well doing things that would take you to hell. I know it sounds like that. It has nothing to do with that at all. It's good if you have a Bible and it's got these little, you know they have little letters after certain words, and you you should always read what it says, because it's an alternative rendering of what that could mean. So, let's have a look what it says here. Uh, I think most people have got them in their Bibles, Um, it's quite common. So it says this, um, repentance from acts that leads to death, little a, go down the bottom, from useless... Rituals. Oh, I never thought it meant that. Well, start thinking now. He will grant you repentance so you can turn from rituals that will lead you to death. Religious people, and you are not religious people, religious people believe that rituals bring them into favor with God. And we Christians can believe the same thing. If I go to church, I read my Bible, and I pray, and I help the poor, and I give money, and I do these things that I'm supposed to do, somehow I will curry favor with God. I tell you, you curry nothing with God. He said, even if you give your body to be burned in the fire, but there's no love. It was a waste. It was a waste. He's talking to religious people here who think through rituals that God will forgive them, love them and bless them. And charismatic Pentecostal evangelical Christians can do just the same. God doesn't treat you better because you go to church or give money or look after the poor. He doesn't do that. Now, you say, all right then, thanks, Phil. We won't bother anymore. We'll just crack on. We won't do nothing. No, I'll tell you something. When you come to a place where God speaks to you and turns you around and you start walking in the direction of God, God becomes bigger and bigger and bigger to you. It is an automatic response to help the poor, to be generous, to want to go to church, to read your Bible, to pray. As soon as you start walking towards God, these things are an automatic response. God ain't going to give you nothing for reading his Bible or praying or giving your money to the poor. He's not going to give you nothing because you've got everything already. He can't give you any more. But the response in when you walk to God is you will do these things. You're not doing it to get anything for him. Otherwise they are acts that will lead to death. See, they're not bad things, they're good things. But we don't mess with them anymore. Apart from the working of God's grace and the moving of God's spirit, man left to himself is incapable of repentance. But when God shows you something, he is saying, listen, I haven't showed you this to embarrass you. I've showed you this so you would know my grace is available for you to turn. But you cannot do it on your own. So pray, God, give me the grace. God, I want to lose weight. Oh God, give me the grace, God. Left to my own devices, I'll be a fat munter for the rest of my life. My God, give me the grace. There are far more serious matters to deal with in our lives. But God covers every one of them. God bless you. Well, we thank God for such a wonderful, encouraging word. As we step into the week, let it be a week of us turning around, changing our mind, and moving in the right direction towards the Father, in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I welcome the worship team once again to come and bless us with one final or two numbers, and then we'll be able to move on. Remember, there is coffee at the end of it. Let us us welcome Alex. He's not been around for a long time. we will tell him, Alex, we love you. Welcome back again. Hallelujah. Amen. And also, maybe... It was your first time to come to be with us. I'm sorry, I forgot to welcome people. In. Maybe it's your first time. Is there anybody's your first time to, to be with us? Anybody? Is your first time? Just raise your hand where you are. At least we can acknowledge you and tell you are welcome. Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Let's we'll start to worship again, yeah? That flows like a wind